my name is Nahka Moin. Uh, on behalf of the uh, SDR division, I welcome all of you to our today's session. Uh, this is part of our meta theory series that we have recently started based on the feedback that we received uh, from the division members. So we appreciate not only your participation in these sessions, but your very, very active engagement in terms of giving us feedback and promoting uh, what we do. We're looking to, uh, forward to another very exciting and engagement session, uh, engaging session with respect to uh, attention-based view. And those of, uh, those of you who have joined us before, you know, we've already covered behavioral strategy and real options in our previous sessions in February and March. In May, we'll follow up these sessions with uh, resources and capabilities as our focal topic. And in June, we'll have a, a transaction cost economic session. So please stay tuned for these upcoming sessions. Uh, we're thrilled today to benefit from the expertise and insights of scholars who have devoted uh, their research and time to attention-based view. So that's been where all their attention has been. Uh, Lou Cree uh, from University of California, Irvine, has kindly agreed to moderate and host a session. And Nell Dot, JP Eggers, Willie Ocasio, and Richard Worthington will lead the discussions and inside. I let uh, Luke uh, introduce uh, our esteemed panelists in a couple of minutes and set the tone for the session accordingly. But uh, we know that attention-based view, like many other theories, has a lot to offer to strategy and probably our one hour and 30 minutes will not do justice to all the insights that can emerge. So we would like to actually start with a quick poll of the participants to see what is it that's bringing you to our today's session here and what would be useful so that we can then build on the collective uh, knowledge of everybody in the session. For folks who are watching the session after the fact, the questions are asking about the relationship between attention-based view and the attendees. Attention-based view as my primary research area is one of the options. Okay, let me share the results with everybody. I think we have it from a good number of folks, like 85% of attendees today are new to attention-based view. So uh, all the discussions and insights will be hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, working and converting them to join us later. And 15% are already working in this area. I hope this will be also helpful for our panelists as they frame the discussion around this. So without further ado, I'll pass the virtual floor to Luke. Thank you all again for joining us. And thanks, Luke and the panelists uh, for sharing your time with us. Okay, so okay, thank you. Uh, let me share my screen first. Uh, <clears throat> so can you see my screen? Okay, so thank you, uh, Vaka, for the intro introducing the, the new STR initiative, Mirror Theory, and I appreciate the opportunity to feature the attention-based view of the firm. Uh, first of all, I'd like to start uh, by saying that it's my honor to moderate this session. The theory that we are going to dedicate today is attention-based view. Uh, and as, well, the why we care about this theory. So as human beings, we know that we are all limited uh, in our attention capacity and we intuitively understand 
uh, such limited nature of attention has huge implications for our life. For example, uh, this is my, my own example. And I talk to my wife every few hours. So using the terminology from social network, social network research, then I form a very strong tie with her. But I often do not remember what she told me during the conversation. So put another way, so I often do not pay attention to the communication with her because of other stuff that occupy my consciousness. So which makes her get mad and ultimately uh, influences our dinner menu and weekend plan uh, broadly the piece of the family. So it's a very important implication for my life and my family. So if uh, people are no less affected by their attentional capacity, boundary rationality in the context of organizations, then they are in other settings like family, then the notion of attention will still have huge implications for people in organizations and organizations per se. And also the organizations provide idiosyncratic circumstances which may require nuanced understanding for the relevance of attention in organizations. So the attention-based view, ABV, has been shown to serve as a powerful theoretical framework. And as shown in the number of people who attend the session and then the number of the survey polls. So we are very eager to learn more. So, so that's why we create a platform to discuss the past, current and future of the ABV. So here's a quick agenda for today. So we are very fortunate to have full leading scholars in strategy and, and organizations research with the Nell, JP, and Richard and in the order of their presentations. So the father of the ABV, Willie Ocasio, who published the original paper in 1997, who will, he will just pro provide a broad view, overview about the attention-based view as well as his own opinion. Then the following the alphabetical order of their last names, then we will have three amazing speakers, uh, Nell, JP, Richard, who uh, have connected the AVV to their own research domain uh, in an innovative and meaningful way. So in terms of a schedule, so we will start with each panel presentation for up to 12 minutes, and which is followed by one broad question that I have here and will ask all the panelists. And between panel presentations, then I will take one question for the purpose of clarification. But the, I hold the rest of the questions until all the panel presentations are done. And to conclude, we will open the floor to questions from the audience for the remaining time. So, okay, so uh, without talking too much, now then I would like to welcome our first speaker, Willie Ocasio. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, let's see if I can share my screen. Okay, you, are you seeing uh, uh, the um, my screen now? Great. So thank you so much uh, for being today. Uh, I mean, it's really su such a great honor that uh, I uh, this uh, paper and the work that it has followed is actually merits a uh, strategy meets a theory. I don't think I ever kind of expected this. Uh, I, you know, I was a bit of gutsy as an assistant professor uh, to write the paper called Towards an Attention-Based View of the Firm uh, and somehow got away with it. Uh, and, you know, I guess the, the rest is uh, history. It's now been uh, 25 years. Now, uh, the uh, I just wanted to kind of start with a kind of a quote from uh, the Presidential Daily Brief of August uh, 16th. Really, excuse me. Uh I interrupt. Is that okay? Uh, I think we're seeing the preview on your side, not on the presentation mode. 
Okay, that's not what I wanted. Um, let's see. Why is that not the case? It's not a problem if. Uh, no, I, I, this is not what I wanted. But, uh, let's see. Shop share. Let me see if I can do it again. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry for the interruption. No, um, I've, I've sometimes had this problem. Uh, but are you still seeing that? Um, Yes. Okay. Yeah, Willie, if you hit the swap displays in the upper yeah, left of the screen you're looking at right now, you can just change which is on which one. The left side of the upper panel. Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Okay, right. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Okay. I've, I'm never very good at this. Uh, I haven't been teaching and uh, I should know this. Anyway, now you got the right thing, right? Yes. Hello. Okay, so uh, I'm showing this kind of, uh, this is the copy of the presidential daily brief of August 6, uh, 2001, which of course it was, you know, a few days before uh, September 11. And we all know what happened in uh, September 11 when Bin Laden did uh, 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 strike the United States. And the interesting thing about this is that the uh, President Bush actually was told that uh, Bin Laden was determined to strike the United States. And uh, there was all these reports. And uh, one of the things here is about, uh, you know, we see the sensational threats reporting so that uh, they will hijack a U.S. aircraft, uh, patterns of suspicious activity in the country, et cetera, et cetera. The, one of the reasons I, I say this, because in many ways, sort of this is, I would call this a huge attentional failure uh, in the United States, uh, in the uh, in the U in United States government, and it's more an intentional failure, also because uh, also I think it illustrates what uh, we mean, or certainly what uh, what the attention-based uh, bureau of the firm means. Because it wasn't that this wasn't noticed; it was it wasn't that it wasn't attended to. And there's kind of a very different perspective uh, about uh, 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 what exactly what we mean and what we mean by attention in the ABV. And I think this helps us. Uh, this example helps us illustrate this, right? So uh, today, and the rest of my presentation, I'm going to talk about some of the uh, precursors of the attention-based view, the 1997 article, how the theory has developed, uh, some of the applications, and uh, something about the future. By the way, uh, it's, I'm not surprised that only 15% of the people uh, uh, say that uh, uh, they have uh, attention-based view as their primary area of research, because in fact, most people who use attention-based view is more about as an adjunct to another theoretical perspective, uh, which uh, uh, is not necessarily the central part. And that's actually in, in a way perhaps even intentional because if you read the uh, attention-based view 97 article, I don't see kind of as a full theory of the firm, but the one that has to be kind of has to be uh, supplemented and complemented with other uh, theoretical perspectives. So one of the things in the original uh, paper that I talked about the, the, the theory, I starts with uh, Simon in 1997 and, in 19, and the Carnegie School as uh, the foundations for the theory. And I, I find it really interesting how people keep, keep citing uh, 1947 Simon as talking about attention. Actually, that book does talk about attention, but not as much. Uh, I, it was kind of my interpretation of, of uh, of uh, what Simon was trying to say rather than what he actually did say. If you really want to understand uh, where uh, my ideas really came from, I actually suggest you read March and Olson 1976, which is the Ambiguity and Choice in Organization book, which is a way to talk more generalizing the, uh, the garbage can model of decision-making. 
For those of you who know the garbage can model, it's about problems, solutions, participants, and decision uh, opportunities coming up in, in this organized anarchy. Uh, any, anything goes uh, is basically the idea. Pro uh, solutions are looking for problems to solve. Participants are busy. Uh, things get thrown into the different decision opportunities. But what the 1976 books did uh, is came up with the ideas of there are these attention structures that in fact problem solutions, participants and decision opportunities are not kind of random or uh, there's actually kind of a structure to them. And in many ways, the, uh, what the uh, 1997 uh, paper was trying to do is take this idea uh, of attention structures, which was not really, really developed in March and Olson, but you know, develop it uh, more generally and looking at organizations as uh, systems of distributed attention, where kind of, you know, I actually uh, elaborate exactly uh, what I mean by uh, uh, by uh, attention structures, you know, the rules of the game, the players, the positions, uh, uh, the resources distributed among communication channels. There's also a distinction between the garbage can model and the attention-based view. The garbage can model, the attention is focused at the level of the decision opportunity. Uh, the, uh, the, the example of the decision opportunity to which the theory came was actually we, we, uh, the selection of the new dean and the UC Irvine that would succeed uh, Jim March. But in fact, uh, the way that I, I, I developed the attention-based uh, view was not focusing on the decision opportunity, but the particular channels of communication. A particular example of the channel of communication was both the briefing, the written briefing of the presidential briefing report that I, that I uh, showed you, but also the actual communications that happened where, the, where President Bush was talking uh, to his advisors about uh, the national security issues and you know, how much they attended to or not. Uh, the uh, the you know the threat of Osama bin Laden. Now, so I you know I use the uh, the uh, ABB uh, the uh, excuse me the bin Laden example to talk about the definition of attention, uh, not just noticing, but also the encoding, interpreting, and the focusing of time and effort on the repertoire of issues and action alternatives facing the organization. Uh, they did notice there was an issue, but uh, in the case of the Bush administration at the time, they didn't really kind of uh, interpret it as something important. They did, certainly didn't focus their time and effort on, on that. And it was not perceived, there were so many other issues and some other activities they were considering that was not the most important one uh, for them. And of course, you know what happened. So uh, I, I, I think this is important to understand what exactly uh, you know, we're meaning uh, by attention on the, on the ABB. In the 97 paper, I also talk about you know, the principles of attention, focus of attention, which is a, precisely about the sustained selective attention being uh, limited uh, in our organization. Uh, the, the second two are not necessarily as understood as well, situated attention. By the situation, I literally mean a particular time and place. So what, uh, the situation, for instance, in that briefing room uh, where the presidential uh, report was being, that was a particular communication channel that occurred in a particular time and place. The attention that's happened, which is, uh, was happening in that particular place was, not, was very different. So think about the situation in a very concrete way. And the structural distribution of attention is, of course, there's you know uh, millions, thousands of things going on, and different people are paying attention to different things. And we think about organization as, as a system of distributed attention. 
Now, another thing, interesting thing about the paper is that the paper that you originally write and the paper that gets published is not the same thing. So there was actually in the original uh, paper, actually five principles of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the attention-based view, two uh, much more cognitive, uh, really about what the cognitive processes, uh, the schemas, the enactment uh, that uh, structure attention. Uh, it was a, uh, it was basically Jim March meet, meets Carl White, and one of the reviewers said, "Well, Carl White and Jim March are talking about two very different things. So why don't you drop the uh, the Carl White uh, uh, attention uh, sense making and act enactment story?" Which uh, I did because I wanted to get the papers the papers published. But I think this is important to note because later on I talk about the the attentional perspective is central to the uh, understanding of attention in organizations. Now, I'm not gonna go through this slide uh, very uh, in, uh, in detail because uh, the, uh, it'll take me a lot of time and we don't have it, but I, I push it, I, I show it because in fact, when we talk about the attention-based uh, based view of the firm was, it really has developed over time. And uh, so I think to really understand the theory, you have to not just understand the 1997 paper in SMJ, which is really a focusing on explaining a specific strategic move or decision, the kind of this more expansive notion that I developed uh, a lot of it with uh, John Joseph uh, in, our, in our studies of, of General Electric and with uh, some other uh, contributors also. Uh, so the, the focus of of channels is actually quite central to sort of my understanding of, of attention and being situated in these uh, these communication channels. But uh, originally it was the idea there was one communication channels, but in fact the kind of the idea is there's multiple channels in the in the in the in the organization, and to the extent that one channel is uh, associated with another channel or not. So like in the case of the of the Bin Laden, you know that. Uh, particular communication happened, and then nothing happened in the rest of the uh, of the communication channels that the president uh, uh, was uh, uh, paying attention to. Of course, till the day of uh, of nine eleven itself. So the uh, the uh, another important paper that that I think uh, were were the theory in a, in a went uh, shifted in a particular way uh, was the two thousand eleven paper in uh, org science. So the Attention-based view was originally uh, a notion that their particular attention is driven particular schemas, particular goals uh, that focus attention in the organization by different players, by, by the rules of the game. This is what you know, uh, cognitive psychologists call top-down attention. Now, uh, that's a different. There's a difference between uh, uh, top-down attention and bottom-up attention, which is the characteristics of the stimuli. Now, this uh, wording that I've used uh, has created this enormous source of confusion because I think a lot of people interpret it as, as top-down as being the attention of the CEO and uh, bottom-up the attention of the people that work uh, 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 for the CEO or, or you know, people lower up in the organization. And that certainly was not my intention. I think the paper does say does not say that, but I, I can see recently why uh, that is, uh, there's a confusion there. So uh, the top down is, you know, uh, we have a particular perspective uh, that we bring into a particular situation. One of the reasons that uh, President uh, uh, Bush did not pay attention to the particular notion of bin Laden is, was he was, he didn't, they didn't understand terrorism. They did not, they had a, they, they, they think about, uh, we really have to uh, think about countries as the sources of terrorists, not a particular terrorist group. 
So their top-down model of what drives what uh, what dangerous to the United States did not allow for understanding the particular stimuli that they were presenting. The particular stimuli being, in this particular case, the uh, the presidential uh, briefing report. So uh, in that case, the top-down attention was was uh, stronger uh, than the stimuli, and they ignored the stimuli, right? Uh, a little bit like the classic story about the gorilla that is ignored in in the in the most uh, in the story about uh, uh, attention. The other thing that happened in the 2011 paper sort of shift from kind of what I would call that attentional control to attentional engagement, uh, which I've now been uh, focusing a lot, emphasizing a lot more, where attention is not just at the level of individual, but at the level of, of, of interactions among individuals. And here is where kind of my subsequent work on communication and the importance of, of, uh, of uh, attention as a, as a communicative process in addition to a, a cognitive one. So this notion of attentional engagement is, is critical. Now, I'm also not gonna go uh, on the slides, but I think the way that, that the attention-based views has been used is more about incorporating into multiple different uh, other uh, areas of research within strategic management. And uh, I think you know one of this is I think one of the ways the uh, the, the uh, theory has been successful precisely because of its multiple applications. Uh, I think what's going to happen in the rest of the day is Nell and JP and, and Richard are going to you know talk about you know their respective areas of interest. Uh, one of the things also, and Richard may also talk about this also, is you know like the studies that I did about attention was really about uh, the multi-business uh, firm kind of ha having GE as a model. Uh, but the world is changing in a very different way. The, the traditional Chandlerian model, the organization is no longer as prevalent. And there's a lot of changes that are happening, you know, moving beyond shareholder to stakeholders, digital transformation, business model innovations, what I call agile bureaucracy. So, so I think this is a lot of opportunities now to rethink about what the environments of strategy, business models, technology, et cetera, and how it, these are kind of opportunities for studying attention in a very different way. I myself am now continuing some research on attention, one uh, actually on business model innovation and the organizations that we have to do it. Uh, it's a paper that actually we're presenting with Jeff Love at, at SMS Milan. And probably one of the uh, most interesting things that I've ever done with that empirically is this paper that I'm starting right now on SHIELD, with it, which is the uh, Illinois saliva test that was developed very successfully. And they grew in a period of, uh, of, uh, of 18 months from, uh, to a $200 million operation. And the, the, we have access to this amazing data, which is one of the things about the attention-based view is that all of the elements hasn't really been uh, studied at once. So this, I guess, is gonna be an opportunity for me and with my co-authors uh, to do so. So a lot of exciting opportunities and I look forward to hearing from the uh, rest of the panelists. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, thank you for really. So it's a very impressive presentation and how to extend the, uh, the Herbert Simon's original view on organizations and systems of distributed attention and then how you build the, the attention-based view as a very flexible and applicable the, theory 
or with the other domains. So, okay, so before I move on to the next presentation by Nell, so if you have any question for clarification about Willie's presentation, and please uh, raise your hand and, and ask question. Okay, otherwise, then, then let me move on to the second presentation and Nell. Okay, I'm just gonna share my screen. There we go. Um, all right, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and uh, for inviting me to join this panel. Um, when uh, Maka and Luke asked me to join, my first reaction was, this is great. I'm gonna have some time to immerse myself back in the attention-based view, which I've used for one of my papers, co-authored with John Joseph. Um, and it's gonna be a really nice experience to get back to research uh, on something that I've used, but I'm not uh, you know, sort of a daily user of. So the best analogy I could think of was, uh, when it comes to wine, I'm someone that drinks wine, but if you ask me to make the wine, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, and as the date got closer, this was sort of the, this, the position that I found myself in, wondering what exactly am I going to say as someone that's used, uh, you know, that drinks the wine, but doesn't make it. Um, and so I'm glad to see, thank you, Maka, for running the poll at the beginning of the session, that uh, I'm here to represent the 85%, you know, uh, as someone that uses this theory to understand phenomena uh, and sees uh, great value to continue development of the theory, but by no means is really an expert on this theory to begin with. So what I will do is focus more on uh, bringing what I know, which is sustainability, and broadly by that, I mean environmental sustainability. Uh, the majority of my expertise lies in understanding um, how firms and organizations uh, pay attention to different types of renewable electricity uh, technologies, as well as in terms of um, toxic waste reduction. But I would argue that hopefully what I'm going to say today is gonna to be broadly relevant for those of us interested in issues connected to climate change. Uh, and hopefully you'll all agree with me that this is an important enough problem that if the attention-based view helps us decompose even a small part of it, uh, it's a worthy activity as, as researchers and scholars. I also noticed that in the audience, there's a few other scholars of sustainability. So please do jump in with questions and additional thoughts um, because I think this can be a very fruitful opportunity for discussion. And again, for those 85% of us who are not experts to continue to learn. <clears throat> So by and large, I started by doing a quick review of the work uh, linking the attention-based view to issues of uh, environmental sustainability. Uh, and the starting point here is, is for my work with John Joseph, where we look at how uncertainty, which is a critical feature of issues of sustainability, affects uh, how firms pay attention to this issue. <clears throat> we are, of course, not the first to have pointed this out. Theoretical work by Tobias Hahn and his co-authors also highlights a related feature, which is ambiguity. And again, this is also something that's central to the behavioral theory of the firm and uh, conceptualizations of uh, decision-making, complex decision-making more generally as, as a relevant uh, way to think about um, why firms may want specifically to pay attention to something like sustainability. Uh, the other person that's done a lot of work in this area is, of course, uh, Professor Tima Bansal, uh, and her work looks at the complexity of sustainability-related issues. And what she means by complexity is really the idea that 
sustainability is a problem for firms, but also for society. And so understanding whether and how firms might pay attention to uh, an issue that resides both within their boundaries and outside uh, can, can have its own challenges. There's also the aspect of scale, really big problems sometimes might be ignored. I don't know if this is also to some extent what happened in the Osama bin Laden example, uh, but perhaps uh, you know, the US government simply decided that there were too many moving parts and they, they weren't able to solve the problem uh, appropriately at the time. <clears throat> and then I would say the, the biggest area of research or the most growing area of research connected to sustainability uh, and attention is uh, regarding the role of stakeholders. Uh, and here I'm gonna draw heavily from the work of Donald Crilly and Paula Sloan, where they look at how different features within the firm might predict why some firms are more likely to pay attention uh, or pay attention in a positive way to the needs of external stakeholders relative to others. So if I was going to sort of draw a common theme across this research, uh, what I would highlight is that this work on sustainability reinforces the point that the challenges related to climate change or environmental improvement is a difficult problem for firms. And this difficulty might be operationalized as complexity, as uncertainty, as ambiguity, so on and so forth. But by and large, this problem is really difficult to solve. And as a result, there may be heterogeneity in uh, the attention uh, that firms uh, dedicate to this challenge and then furthermore, the actions that they take thereafter. Uh, and also- Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. Are we mm -hmm. supposed to see, are we supposed to see uh, the slides? Because I mean, what I can see is like the introductory slide. Uh, I've been scrolling, so. Uh, no, I mean, okay. not for us. Okay, okay, <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, no, thank you for the interruption. Let me, let me try again. So Willie, you're not the only one that's having trouble with uh, technology. How about now? Do you see a slide titled attention? Okay, Perfect. great. And what happens if I scroll? Do you see the next slide? Yes. Excellent. Um, okay, so, well, at least this means you were definitely listening to my words, which is possibly even more important. Um, so by and large, if I was going to draw a common theme across this research, it highlights the fact that solving sustainability or addressing sustainability related issues is difficult for firms. Uh, and a big part of the research has focused on explaining heterogeneity in noticing and focusing based on external triggers, whether it's institutions, the media, regulation, peers, so on and so forth. I suspect some of this has to do simply with research design issues. As, as uh, scholars, we're looking for something exogenous that's gonna create heterogeneity in the actions of firms. Um, there's less work specific to the sustainability realm, focusing as much on heterogeneity within the internal structures of firms. Although often we see the complementarity between external triggers and internal triggers. So in terms of sort of future areas of growth specific to understanding this phenomena, what I come across repeatedly in my interviews with managers is that there are very strong differences in terms of internal preferences for sustainability. I've done a lot of interviews regarding the renewable electricity industry, and this difference is reinforced repeatedly. 
Um, Tima Bunsell's done some work looking at adoption of ISO 14000 standards. You know, this is her old work. Now the standard is widespread. Uh, but at the time of early adoption, again, the fact that there are these differences in internal preferences came across uh, very repeatedly. And so a simple way of thinking about these differences might be that in some cases, firms view sustainability as an opportunity, in other cases, more as a threat. Uh, and another way to think about this challenge is that perhaps external stimuli trigger the initial noticing of sustainability related issues, but then there remains quite a bit of heterogeneity in the extent of focusing and subsequent action. And this has to do with internal structures, internal preferences within the firm. So this is something that I think uh, deserves further attention and the attention-based view as a theory can help those of us interested in these types of phenomena to decompose it further. On the external side, by and large, we've tried to look at attentional heterogeneity at the organizational level. But again, if we take the work of these sustainability scholars seriously, a big part of the challenge with respect to responding to something like climate change is that the, the problem resides not only within the firm, but at a level above the organization. So perhaps research that can help us understand changes in attention or heterogeneity in attention at the level of the industry, at the level of society, at the level of groups of institutions uh, would be sort of the next uh, ex expected step to, to understand why some firms react to this uh, change um, uh, with respect to sustainability and others don't. So to summarize, I, I see the attention-based view and in particular, with its roots in the, in the behavioral theory of the firm as being a very useful way to understand grand challenges such as those related to sustainability. Uh, there is a fair amount of current work uh, because of the flexibility of the attention-based view that gives us a starting point and a roadmap. Uh, future work that I think would be very interesting on this type of phenomenon would be decomposing further the internal preferences for sustainability uh, as well as looking externally at changes and the development of attention to sustainability at the supra-organizational uh, supra level. And that's it for me. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank you uh, for the interesting presentation, Nell. And, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I, was, I was very well, intriguing to hear you saying that the, uh, the you use the theory to understand phenomenon and then and I understand why the, you see sustainability from the attention perspective because the sustainability may be agenda uh, that may be victimized by the other mainstream agendas attracting miniature organizational attention so in that sense people may find it difficult to well intuitively intuitively pay attention to sustainability such that yeah the, the role of attention may be important to yeah implement the sustainability agenda. So uh, well, likewise, well, let me just take one question for clarification about Nell's presentation. Uh, if not, then then the, we move on to uh, JP. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks uh, to uh, to Luke and to Maka and to the SDR division and everybody for being here today. 
uh, talk a little bit about, about attention. Um, so I was gonna start with caveats, not unlike the way Nell started. And actually Nell pretty much stole my opening comments that she was going to make. I, I'm not a wine drinker, so I was not quite gonna make the wine analogy, but I was gonna go with more or less kind of the same, the same basic approach uh, as you'll kind of see kind of laid out here a little bit. And, and you know, I, I mostly wanted to say that, you know, as I tried and spent some time thinking about attention, mostly I then go back and reread, as Willie pointed out, the 97, but to me especially, and I think that'll be appropriate, clear why, the 2011 paper, uh, and I'm kind of like, well, look, Willie already said that, Willie already said that. So yeah, there's work to be done around that, but it's it's mostly been trying to take a lot of the stuff that Willie's really laid out and, and trying to figure out kind of how and where it applies. Um, which, which I think is one of the beauties of this theory. And again, as Willie had said, it applies more generally. And as a result, it's that relationship between the attention-based view and other strategy or innovation or orgs or econ theories that's important. And, and I think it's, it's especially important because obviously attention alone cannot explain the world. In the end, we're talking about some sort of resource allocation or behavior or constraints or whatever. Um, and, and that goes beyond the ABV. So the question is, how does the ABV interact with these other theories? Willie, I think in his early comments mentioned this is kind of you, people using the ABV as kind of an adjunct view in an overarching uh, phenomenon driven story. And I think because of all of this and because of my own personal kind of preferences and background, my approach is gonna to be to focus on outcomes and specifically adaptation, the same way Nell was kind of focusing on sustainability. Um, yes, this is a theory session, but as a kind of large scale empirical phenomenon driven researcher, that's where my head goes. And so I'm gonna start with data basically and work backwards um, in order to try and think about what this means from a theory perspective. And, and the part I'm gonna focus on explicitly is this idea that organizations are comprised of many actors. And so without a doubt, you know, the back, back to, to March and Cohen, but through uh, Willie's ABV piece uh, and all the subsequent research, this is a key point, but I think we often kind of have to need to think about the attention at an individual level and at the aggregate level. Um, and I'm gonna focus especially on the aggregate level as I think about organizational adaptation. So uh, basically the empirical relationship that shows up in a lot of these papers um, is some sort of an observed correlation between attention and adaptation. Adaptation, new product, new technology, org change, whatever it might be. Uh, and it's that empirical relationship that's, that's of interest for a lot, a lot of researchers. Um, why did that, there we go. Um, when we think about attention, we can think about it in terms of how we often measure it, which is usually some sort of text or language or whatever it might be. More conceptually, it could be internal communications, formal or informal, a uh, press release within the company, an email, a uh, speech at a corporate event, and it could be some internal processes for, that are purely internal to the manager. So what's going on within the manager's head uh, potentially as well. Why is this not? Okay. And obviously there's a bunch of papers and Willie actually had, I, I think his slide did a much better job of laying out a, a number of these, but especially if I think about the ones related to adaptation, um, here's some of the ones that, that kind of come to mind. And you know, if you think about my paper with Sarah, um, what we're really looking at is this idea that, um, that the effect of attention, specifically, I think, at least to me, the most interesting part, attention to the old technology is kind of more inertial than the firm's capabilities in the, in the old technology. Um, that it is that attentional component that is what is holding back firms in their ability to adapt. 
Now, there's many potential non-causal stories about a relationship like this. This could be a window dressing story. Maybe most importantly, it could be a correlated third variable story. Mostly what I mean here is the idea that managers are simply talking about their resource allocation strategy. Um, so it, it, they're just describing it and that's what we're picking up. Um, and so that one's maybe especially important, but I'm, if I put those aside for a second and I think about, well, how could there be a causal relationship between attention and adaptation? Um, and it's maybe that, that question about what would that process look like? That's where I'm gonna try and focus here uh, today. And I'm gonna offer basically three stories. I wanna be clear, these three stories completely fail both, both parts of the MISI test. They are not mutually exclusive, nor are they collectively exhaustive, but they are meant to be three illustrations of the underlying processes that could go on. And they're gonna go kind of increasing levels of complexity, maybe a little bit. The first would be attention as signal. This idea that managers express some attention, they, they devote attention to a specific topic, a new technology, maybe an old technology, whatever it might be. That attention leads to changes in resource allocation behavior by others. Um, and so specifically here, I think about shaping the frames that mental manager, that middle managers would bring to the, 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 the processes that they engage in. And it's those resource changes that would lead to adaptation within the firm. This is basically a process where I think that attention would be resolving uncertainty within the organization uh, and provide direction for others uh, to, to kind of make sense of what's going on. In kind of the, 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 the language that Willie uses in the 2011 paper, this would be kind of a top-down schema-driven attentional perspective view where the manager is kind of expressing uh, and, and sharing kind of an, an attentional view that pushes a schema on others from a very top-down perspective within the firm. And if I link this with kind of outside theories or perspectives or concepts, um, this would be a lot around uncertainty, kind of how do we resolve uncertainty? How do we solve coordination problems within the firm where there are many actors in the, in the organization and they may or may not all agree on what things should be happening next? And I think about this as a legitimacy process as well. So how do we establish legitimacy for a new technology or sustainability or whatever it may be? It's by the manager kind of allocating attention in a, in a visible and public way uh, that affects the organization's perception of legitimacy for, uh, for this new concept. So that's kind of one view, attention as a signal within the organization. Second, I can think about attention as a resource. Um, and here I think about this, this same process of attention being related to resource changes, but now it's not just resource changes by others, it's resource changes by the manager who is kind of engaging in and, and whose attention we are capturing when we look at this empirically. And, and here I think about the idea that managers are able to enable resource changes because they are involved. Um, they're able to solve problems within the organization. And, and I'll be specific about that in just a second. Here I think about this in the 2011 paper is more intentional engagement. It's both a top-down, managers being involved directly and imposing their view on the organization, but also a bottom-up process whereby uh, middle managers are raising issues to the senior manager. And that senior manager is kind of then choosing, devoting attention to where to get involved to solve those problems. Here I think about, I think most obviously the link with the, the RBV, this idea of attention as a resource that managers can allocate and is a scarce resource that affects the ability of firms to, uh, to, to achieve their goals. 
I think about this helping to resolve political conflict and coalition coalition games between different uh, middle managers or groups within the organization, where the senior manager gets involved to try and help help do that. And, and the problem solving perspective, which gets back very much, now we're back to the garbage can model, right? We're back to kind of how is it that organizations seek to solve problems, but this idea that managers, senior managers allocate their attention in ways that actually affects the way that problems get solved within the organization by being brought into solving those, those types of issues. Um, and so here I can imagine the back and forth between discussions of terrorism before 9-11 um, to the extent that the president, the president allocates attention towards that issue, then the CIA and FBI come back with, well, what are we going to do about this? And we need you to be involved directly to help us solve those problems. The third type really I think about as being, I would call it attention as learning. Um, and, and here this more complicated perspective kind of says that managers allocate attention that's going to lead to and very much back to the language that Willie was using before, not just about noticing, but also coding, interpreting, um, and kind of assimilating information. That allocation of attention is going to affect what new information is being encoded and, and is being brought into the firm. That's going to affect the mental model that managers possess. And then that mental model affects the resource allocation processes that managers use. And it's those resource allocation processes that lead to adaptation. Uh, to be clear here, just very briefly on mental models, I'm thinking about an understanding of what the firm can do, an understanding of the competitive landscape, and an understanding of the broader environment, technology, consumers, whatever it is. Um, but here it's that process of, well, there's lots of feedback, there's tons of information out there around any, any person or, or, or firm, and managers have to decide which of those pieces of feedback or new information, they're going to allocate attention to in a way that allows that information to come inside the firm, uh, to come inside the manager and become updated into their broader mental model. Um, and of course, that mental model itself will then shape the attentional processes for the, for, for the manager because it, effectively the mental model affects all decision making, including the decisions on the allocation of attention. Here, this I think about a process of awareness and interpretation of encoding information. Um, in terms of the 2011, I think this is kind of all the different types that Willie kind of lays out there, um, especially bottom-up kind of stimulus-driven, uh, this kind of new information, but the schema is being imposed over that stimulus in a way that affects kind of what makes it through the filter um, back into the organization and into the manager. And here, I think this, this links to the broader kind of scope of behavioral theory, uh, very much a cognition perspective around mental models, a learning perspective around updating, a feedback perspective on what new information is available there, um, and as well as to some extent this capabilities-based story around how do managers uh, understand what the firm can and can't do. Um, yeah. Okay. So what? So what am I? What do I think I'm? I'm. What do I hope I'm getting out of kind of taking the, this approach of kind of working backwards from this observed empirical relationship? Again, attention is, is its own theoretical perspective, but as Willie said, it's not a theory of the firm. And as a, relate, as a result, it must relate to other theories and concepts in terms of how we create change within the organization. Second, in multi-person organizations, which kind of by definition really is what an organization is, there's multiple ways that attention can link to outcomes. And this is important for the language Willie was using, this system of distributed attention. Um, so, so what is that system of just distributed attention, as well as how does it relate to distributed responsibilities uh, that exist within an organization? And these three different 
maybe more potential, have different underlying assumptions of boundary conditions. They're gonna have different relationships to other theories. It's also gonna mean there's different roadblocks and challenges or enablers, different conditions under which uh, attention as a signal may come through cleanly, but attention as learning could be messy potentially. And this is gonna have different implications for things like hiring, what kind of managers you're gonna to wanna to have, the way you would communicate strategically. And so trying to be clearer on uh, these, these, these different underlying processes is helpful. So what does that mean? I, I think that there's probably a lack of clarity in many studies, certainly mine, when I look back and before this session, rereading the 2009 paper, as well as other, other work, um, I think we can all be better served by being clearer on what is that link that we're talking about. And I think it provides an opportunity for us to further articulate and test and provide evidence on, that, on those processes. Of course, as I said, the challenge is I think all of them are actually happening and more. And so I don't think we're in a situation where we're gonna be able to discriminate between attention as a signal versus attention as a resource, but thinking better about how those three and, and again, other processes might interrelate uh, may lead us to kind of new ideas and new perspectives on kind of the multi-actor way in which systems of distributed attention uh, lead to change in the organization. And that's what I got. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the, I, I, re I really like you that setting the, the attention in a multi-dimensional way. And particularly that remind, well, no, your presentation reminds me of the, uh, the, the example that the Hank Chesbrough in his book about open innovation illustrated the about the Xerox Park Palo Alto Research Center, the where the decision makers fail fail to pay attention to some breakthrough innovations invented already inside the lab, which such as graf, graphical user interfaces and the word pro processors, which are the later commercialized by other firms. Then that that example I think would fit the, your theorization about attention as signal resources and learning. So I, yeah, I, I find that a very informative and, and relevant well, from personally. So, so likewise, well, let me just take one question for clarification about JP's presentation. Okay, so then we move on to the uh, last speaker, Richard. Hi there, everybody. Uh, can everyone see in a moment, I hope? Yeah, you've got it. Yes, yes, I'll do. And let's see whether I'm any better than anybody else and moving slides forwards. Uh, yeah, Did that move. Great, thank you, JP. Well, JP, thank you for that uh, uh, presentation because I'm going to have to admit that I'm stealing the introduction and opening remarks that Nell stole from you uh, with a caveat. Um, two caveats, I think. Uh, firstly, yes, definitely, the attention-based view is an adjunct to my own perspective, which has been a more practice-oriented approach to strategy. And, and the other caveat is, is I'm a latecomer to ABV in the sense that I discovered it through what Willie referred to uh, as one of his last papers. That is um, Willie's paper with Tommy Laman and Nero Vara. And I'm going to touch on the implications of that, where they develop what um, one might consider a more interactive and dynamic um, perspective 
on the social engagement, the social interactions of people around the strategy process. So as a latecomer, um, I, I've only really got deeply into this paper by Tomiero and Willie in 2018, the SMJ paper. And um, as an adjunct, I'm taking it through a strategy as practice lens to an extent. And I, what I'm asking here is that what are the implications of, to use Willie's terms earlier, of the ch post Chandlerian firm? Alfred Chandler, some of you will remember, not many will perhaps, um, made a big thing about the separation of strategy from operations. And in that sense, Alfred Chandler defined strategy as an elite sport, where lower level employees, middle managers were excluded and strategy was for the corporate center, for the cor corporate elite. Now, what's happened recently with the post-Chandlerian firm is a move towards strategy as an amateur sport, and that has implications for how attention is handled. So I'm gonna be looking at attention as an amateur sport, and hopefully um, I'm gonna pick up on what Willie's been talking about in terms of the post-Chandlerian firm. If you like, it's summarized um, here by the familiar pyramid with a chief executive at the top, and we move towards a more network, decentralized, more fluid, flatter organization form. This kind of um, argument has been rehearsed many times over the last 20 or 30 years, but it has implications for how the strategy process is managed. So attentional channels become less hierarchical um, and we have greater dynamism in the formal and informal attentional channels by which strategies are generated, implemented and reconstituted. So there's been a big change and that has implications for how we understand strategy and attention. In particular, going directly to Willie's paper with Tommy and Aero in the SMJ in 2018, uh, we're moving away from, I think Willie, you can correct me, from what you call there, I love this expression, a pipes and prisms view of, the atten of attention in which attention is channeled and as it were shaped or reflected through pipes and prisms. Now we're turning our attention, I think, or we're focusing or refocusing onto what goes on inside the pipes. And that's where a practice uh, perspective is particularly helpful, I think. Well, we're talking about streams of communication that evolve dynamically over time and across organizations. And, oh, excuse me, that's the clock four o'clock in the UK, I don't know whether you could hear that. Um, uh, so uh, we're moving from this conduit model, a pipes model of attention, to what goes on inside. If you can see the graphic inside, those interactive dynamic uh, little filaments inside the pipe are where we're, we're focusing with this more dynamic attention-based view. So we're in amateur time, I'd argue, in this post-Trandolian process. We are including many more people in the strategy process and being more transparent about it. In other words, strategy is moving from a closed elite process, an exclusive process, to an open, inclusive, and if you like, amateurish process, where employees are being sucked into 
something which is unfamiliar to them, something for which they're not prepared and for which they may not have the skills. So in that sense, as strategy moves from closed Chandelierian to open or more open, somewhat post-Chandelierian, um, we have more pipes going in more directions, ups and downs, sideways and so on and so forth. Uh, there's less routine or structure in those pipes. They're relatively novel and they may be ad hoc. They may be used occasionally. So Willie mentioned his work on General Electric. I think in the 2012 paper, there's a great picture of attention flows. General Electric had a well-established, routinized um, set of attention pipes or channels in which well-trained managers, organizing in a hierarchy, knew what they were doing. Now we have much more complexity in the pipes, more actors, and the actors don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to engage with strategy. They don't know how to seek to gain the attention of senior managers, these new participants. So the amateurs are in difficulty. Uh, so to illustrate that and to talk a little bit about how that might work, I'm going to draw upon a study that uh, Violetta Splitter, especially David Seidel and, and least of all me, have been involved in, in an insurance company in, in Switzerland. Okay, so it's an open strategy process where um, 40 lower level employees, lower managers, professionals, specialists, actuaries and people like that, were deliberately sucked into a strategy process, an open strategy process, in which over 20 weeks they're invited to work um, on various uh, strategic projects for a new chief executive. And each week they would report to that chief executive and try and sell, to use Nell's terms, their various issues to that chief executive. Okay, so what Violetta did was observe this process. She, she followed the meetings that these um, lower level employees had, and she particularly observed the presentations and discussions they had with the chief executive over a period of about 20 weeks. And she was interested, she, she chronicled in particular about 880 discursive moves or interventions by these lower level employees, and she tracked the way in which the chief executive responded. Did they manage to gain the chief executive's attention or not? At the beginning, they were hopeless. The chief executive was dismissive, rude, and almost gave up this 20-week process within two or three weeks. But they persevered. And the point that, 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 that Violetta gets to is that over time, the crucial thing is these amateurs learned how to get attention. So the channel was there. The chief executive has set up a pipe, an open strategy pipe of 20 weeks. But what was going on inside was initially ineffective because the participants were not the well-educated, smooth, familiar um, executives of General Electric, but a bunch of lower level employees. They learned how to gain attention. So um, what we see broadly is over the 20 weeks, we categorize into four practices. Initially, um, the uh, employees 
relied on what we call mirroring and mirroring and localizing practices, mirroring just reflecting what the chief executive said, trying to carry favor. Localizing was being too much lower level issues. And gradually they began to integrate what they knew as lower level employees with what the chief executive was concerned. And over time they learned. So in the pipe that was established, the dynamic interaction between employees and chief executive changed how the pipe worked. And hence the importance of a dynamic interactive approach to the ABV. So uh, just to conclude, the, the argument I think I'm making here is that the post-Chandlerian strategy process, one which is more open, more participative, more inclusive, problematizes attention. It's not just a matter of you, you design an architecture of pipes and channels and prisms. What you need to do is look at the interactions which go on inside. Those are what are determinant of the effectiveness of those pipes and channels. So this dynamic attention-based view that uh, Willie began to lay out in 2018 in the SMJ becomes much more relevant than some of the earlier work on simply the pipes and prisms. Um, and here, what we need to understand is how the actors behave within the pipes, the practices they use and draw upon. And where I think this is helpful, um, for me at least, um, without a, a good background in social psychology, is that it helps shift methodologically from cognition, which I find really elusive to capture in managerial practice. It's very hard to know when people are paying attention. Luke, I'm sure your wife thought you were paying attention when you forgot what she said, but you weren't. Um, and it's equally difficult methodologically for us to capture um, in the field, managerial attention. But we can observe the interactions and we can observe the chief executive's feedback, whether dismissive, as it was initially, or more accepting and um, effective towards the end. So, so my argument is that the post-Chandlerian firm does shift us from the pipes to what's going on inside, and that helps too in broadening the methodologies which are available to us um, as uh, Violetta did particularly um, towards more observational field work, which I think is a helpful thing as well. And that's where I'll stop. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Richard. Yeah, so this is great presentation. Then, then here is, I think, this is the another the important perspective that I think that you you have brought up during the presentation. What well, dynamic attention-based view. So yeah, I think yeah, well, the literature may have assumed the attention as a static construct, as a snapshot. But I think you highlight, well, then we need to go beyond that and then and then consider some dynamic the interaction that may change over time in terms of potential location and interactions between employees and CEOs. So yeah, it's a very insightful and, and, and informative presentation. I appreciate that. So, okay, so before we move on to the uh, Q&A session and a question about uh, Richard's presentation for clarification. Okay, then, then, and then uh, let me move on to uh, the uh, 
uh, the Q&A. So from now on, the, we open the, uh, the floor to the question. The, before, we, before I take questions from the audience, uh, let me open up for the Q&A by asking one broad question. Uh, the, I suspect then there are uh, the good number of junior faculty and doctor students in the audience. And then I also see this one, the relevant question on chat, uh, which is about empirical challenges. So the perhaps uh, the main goal of junior faculty and doctor students is to publish empirical papers in a good journal. Then, so the, the, my question for the educational purpose for the audiences, the, I'd like to ask you to share any you know, your, your insight into any empirical challenges that may constrain from associating the attention-based view with other research domains, including ones of your interest or advancing the attention-based view per se. And on top of that, it will be also helpful for the audiences to learn from you uh, the useful uh, the model approaches to get around those any empirical challenges that you may see as uh, important. So, well, well, after this, after discussion about this question, then, then, then we, I'm going to take uh, questions from the audience. Um, I'm going to start. You know, one of the things that, uh, first of all, reminds me when you talk about empirics, when I, when, when I was being, my, my tenure case was being interviewed uh, uh, at the uh, University of Illinois in my new job, the uh, uh, senior executive dean looks at my papers, you're really a theorist, aren't you, right, uh, which I think is true, so I, I kind of focus my, more on the theory aspect than the empirical uh, part. That being said, you know, one of the things about the 2018 paper is that in a way it kind of shifts the, uh, the focus from attention as a cognitive process to a communicative one, which I think, uh, I think is really interesting from an empirical point of view, because what uh, was, uh, was before seen as a bug of a lot of the empirical research is being where you're, ta you're talking about text, you're talking about you're not really uh, looking at the uh, what's happening within the brains of people. Well, in fact, if really what's really important uh, about attention at the organizational level is the communications that happen uh, uh, within and between channels, then actually uh, focusing on the communications and which you can actually record and study uh, with you know more qu quantitative with respect to kind of text analysis uh, uh, or more qualitative uh, like in the work that uh, uh, Richard is talking about is actually kind of I think where actually our work should be done and rather than be apologetic about the uh, use of communication or text it, it, it was like well, that, well actually that's where uh, attention not at the level of the individual brain but at the level of the organization resides uh, now uh, you know which types of communications are important uh, I think is uh, is is uh, are more valid uh, uh, are and not just uh, you know symbolic for instance one thing that people are, are using now a lot is uh, uh, you know the uh, the quarterly earnings reports of the CEOs where actually in a sense there's kind of some legal issues about well they can't exactly saying things that are not true because that makes them susceptible to uh, uh, basically uh, their shareholders. There's a really interesting paper in 2021 by Elkland and, and Manor, which uh, I should, anybody who wants to look at uh, uh, quantifying uh, uh, attention, they actually come up with this validated vocabulary uh, of looking at the particular terms, different kind of categories of attention. I would certainly encourage you to look at that paper as a way to kind of, they've done a very nice job of measuring uh, attention. 
I can jump in quickly. I mean, I think uh, I think Willie laid it out nicely. I think that that looking at communication um, certainly has been the hallmark of anybody trying to do large scale quantitative. Uh, and, you know, that's been whether it be letters to shareholders, earnings calls, whatever, whatever it may be to do it. There are, of course, the problems that, you know, now at some point that the hedge funds are using those to and running uh, ML kind of crawlers over them. And so now CEOs are changing their language to try and appeal to the hedge funds uh, becomes a little bit of a challenge for some of the more recent uh, text, potentially. Um, I do think to some extent it depends upon the normative, the, the, the obvious normative implications of what you look at, right? If you look at language that has obvious normative implications, that's probably at least potentially more window dressing or at least potentially influenced by things like that. To the extent you're capturing things that don't have a clearly normative uh, component to them, maybe it's less of an issue that, that we're looking at it that way. Um, I actually think to, to the point that, um, that Heather had put in the chat, I mean, one of the real challenges for me in terms of thinking about moving work on attention and cognition forward from a large scale quant perspective is I think we've got reasonably decent ways to look at this as a firm level construct and we're kind of crap at looking at it within the firm. Um, maybe within one firm, depending upon if you can get access to certain internal documents, you can get maybe parts of this, but you know, cross firm within organization level data across multiple levels gets really, really, really hard to find with any regularity. Um, and I think that makes presents a real challenge. Um, I feel like that's why I, it's those situations I end up falling back on theory driven papers where be, theory papers because it's like, I don't know how to measure this, right? I think it's important and interesting, but I don't have a good way to get at it. Um, from what it's worth for me, that's where I found my way into models to some extent is I, I've got these ideas, but I can't measure them. So we're, we're going to use other approaches or ways to try and get it. I'll jump in just quickly because I think I'm the closest to being an assistant professor from the panel. Um, so the two things that I'd like to highlight basically that Willie and JP have already mentioned uh, is to really understand your phenomena. And this can be one way to get around the measurement challenges. Perhaps uh, there's a way to measure attention in your context, in your industry, uh, in the time period of interest that may not be general, but if you know your phenomena really well, you can sort of push for that. Uh, and hopefully you will get open-minded reviewers. Uh, that's a given regardless. And then the second thing is to be parsimonious with the complementary theories. Um, so the nice thing about attention is that it gives you a lot of flexibility, but you need to be careful about complementing the attention-based view with other theories that have similar sort of starting condition assumptions. Uh, and there's, there's many, but still, uh, I, I, now I'm, I'm an editor, so I'm starting to see some papers that use the ABV um, and let's just say there's there's some limits to that flexibility that should not be uh, broken. Yeah, I, I want to add more thing uh, in terms of the individual attention and also neuroscience, which is one of the questions. I mean, people have actually studied this, right? Uh, so Daniela uh, Laredo Martinez and, and Stefan Russoni have a series of papers uh, where they do fMRI and actually look at uh, about individual attention in terms of and try to explain kind of exploration and exploitation. So it's, it, you know, it's a very kind of uh, uh, laborious uh, method, but it certainly exists, right? Uh, so that's one way to looking at uh, attention. Uh, and the other thing about the neuroscience, which is more about theory than about measurement, is that actually, uh, you know, some of the way that, that the theory has developed uh, is really kind of focusing on some of the insights about uh, uh, neuroscience, because for actually the notion of attentional control, also known, known as executive attention, 
it's actually kind of a concept about uh, 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 that comes from neuroscience uh, uh, rather than cognitive psychology. And, and this is basically, you know, the prefrontal context of the brain. Basically, people have an ability to uh, concentrate. Uh, and the concentration aspect of attention is different from the selectivity aspect of attention. And actually, the brain structure uh, uh, has different parts of the brain uh, are, uh, focus, uh, explain different aspects of attention, which from a narrow thyroid perspective really means that attention is more than one thing at the neuroscience level. Could I just add to what Willie said something there? So I could have a colleague, Thomas Powell, who also does the uh, attempts at neuroscience approach. Um, I've got a slight reservation about it because what one measures there is the individual in a very artificial uh, situation. And I think the great benefit of what Willie has been doing with the 2018 paper is take us into the field where managers are paying attention. And I think that's very different because that's always social and, and very context bound. And in a sense, going back to what JP said, I think the value of um, doing single cases is, is to uh, make very clear the contextuality of what's going on. And there's a, there's a, a danger, I think, of generalizing, especially from either individuals in isolation, an MRI scanner, or from large um, samples. To, so I, I think what, what uh, Violetta finds in a particular um, insurance company may not be exactly the same elsewhere in this particular process, but that, that in the sense is the value of the insight, the deep insight into particularity that she gives. I don't disagree, Richard, but I'm going to take slight exception. And the only slight exception is that, you know, I think one of, because of the complexity of the study of attention, so triangulation of methods is a good, good thing, right? Uh, so we should think about, you know, the, the multitude different uh, types of methods that we use. And certainly qualitative is one that actually is starting to do more and more. Uh, you know, we've used historical methods uh, in, in the work with John Joseph. So uh, I think, uh, you know, and to the extent that, uh, uh, you know, there's there's more or less there, there can be convergence across different methods. That way, to kind of gives us more more uh, sense of whether the uh, the theory is holds, and even whether there are differences. Then also that uh, points out to uh, areas uh, that we should have a better understanding of. Okay, so thank you. Uh, then I think we have covered a few of uh, the questions that are posted on chat and uh, the uh, neuroscience thing and empirical measure thing. And here is one question by Murad, or maybe specific to JP's presentation. So Murad, well, if you don't mind, could you unmute and, and, and ask that question? Or I can I can just uh, just uh, repeat also. JP's attention flow figure seems similar to Hembrick Mason's upper echelon figure. So distinction being that in Hembrick Mason the outcome is realized by the biased choice, while the ABV the outcome is adaptation. Would you agree? Yeah, and I, I sorry I just I was just typing something in chat a second uh, ago too. So but. It, it's, it was, I just actually think it was a good, was interesting way to think about some of this. So um, I guess I would, be, I would say two things. One, I think that 
the ABV provides some of the language for thinking about the ways in which things like managerial background actually would translate into bias choice or different perceptions. And it's the idea that basically heterogeneity and managerial background or training or whatever it is will lead those managers to pay attention to different aspects of what's going on around them, which then leads to different understandings of the world, which then leads to different outcomes. Um, I feel like the Hambrick and Mason is relatively agnostic on what that underlying process is, other than it's some sort of cognitive psychological process. I think the ABV provides a good way to think about that. Um, I, I think more generally, I guess, it, and if I, I mean, look, that, that's, Hambrick and Mason is a mental model, a very early kind of a mental model kind of a paper without really explicitly talking about it that way. Um, I, I make the distinction between between the flow and the stock. We think about this as like balance sheet and income statement or you know the bathtub analogy or whatever it is, different ways to do this. I think about attention as being an active flow, right? It is It is a resource that you're allocating at a given moment and it's pointed, it's directed in some way. There's some sense that it changes over time. Whereas we think about the mental model, or we think about kind of the whatever, how we want to think this broader perspective, um, it is the stock, right? It is, it, it is a constantly changing stock based upon new information that comes in. Um, and, and so it is affected by the types of attention and new information that's being assimilated. Um, but but the, there is that distinction between the stock and the flow that I, I've tended, I personally find useful in terms of thinking about this, um, which gets at this idea that attention is very much situated, very much dynamic, very much kind of action-oriented um, as opposed to something that is a more stable construct or at least semi-stable, um, like we typically talk about for at least the, you know, mental models are stable at least in a relatively short period of time, um, more or less. That would be my broad take. Okay, thank you. I, I, I will add something to the also, it, it, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, you functional backgrounds, the, there's a original paper in 1958 by Dear, Dearborn and Simon about uh, functional backgrounds, and they, they talked about it, they call it selective perception, but they, they could have well as call it uh, selection, selective attention, right? Uh, so that link has been there for a long time. And I would also say in terms of the uh, uh, the work of, uh, of, of Hambrick, uh, you know, actually in some of, some of the the subsequent uh, work he's done, uh, including the book he has with uh, Finkelstein, he actually more directly incorporates attention as a kind of uh, as a mediating mechanism, right? Uh, and obviously, there's also the paper with Cho and Hambrick in uh, 2006. So I think uh, you know, in the original formulation of that theory, it wasn't there, but they certainly have moved uh, more in that direction. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And, and well, any question, well, audiences, any question, well, feel free to intervene and uh, raise your hand or feel free to speak up by unmuting yourself. I, I would actually love to have the question that, that Tagi's put in the, uh, in the chat discussed at least a little bit here. Sorry, I, I know Philip just put up his hand as well, but like, and, and but those, the, 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 the one that Tagi put in, I think to me is one of the, is one of the most interesting ones here. So I can take a first stab um, because I think my answer will be pretty short. Would you like me to repeat the question or do you want to do that first, Luke? Oh, okay. So 
Yeah, so antecedent of attention. Okay, so, well, could you share what, what your insight about that? Well, in general, yeah, no, no, no strict format about this. Well, yeah, now the police is, yeah, feel free to. So I'll speak going back to my presentation relevant to issues of sustainability. Um, I won't speak in general because we have the expert in the room uh, on that. And so I'm sure Willie can jump in. Uh, so yes, uh, you're right, Tari. I didn't put anything on my slide related specifically to antecedents, not because I do, uh, think the literature there is saturated, uh, but rather I think with related to sustainability, um, some of the arguments I made about identifying internal triggers should actually get back towards understanding the antecedents. So to the extent that the antecedents arise within the firm or within societies, um, I think we do need to understand a lot more there. Um, but it may well be that the antecedents to paying attention to sustainability are similar to other novel complex challenges. Uh, but I think until we see some of the empirical research, it's hard to know where the overlaps with other similar complex phenomena lie and where the distinction lie. My work with uh, Patricia Thornton on institutional logics actually uh, made the case that institutional logics are in a sense antecedents of, of attention at a very, very macro level, which is uh, you know, uh, quite similar to uh, Nell's point, right? Uh, it, it, uh, so when you when you think about uh, if you think about attentional perspective as kind of the the uh, the cognitive process, then the question is, you know, what are the antecedents of of those cognitive processes, right? Uh, uh, um, there's also kind of the, the structural antecedents too, right? Uh, why is it that we have a particular uh, you know uh, organizational structure? I mean, uh, part part of this is that uh, you know. Um, uh, JP talked about causality, but I think one of the difficulties of all of this is that, you know, the complexity of the process, right? Everything is going to be very context specific and, and these are ultimately uh, recursive processes too. It depends on the time period uh, that you're talking about, right? Uh, 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 like a logic is, is just a logic is kind of uh, exist over a, a longer period of time, right? Uh, so it might be kind of an antecedent to something that's happening in a, at a particular moment. I, I think Willie, Willie's comments there uh, very much kind of mirror my thoughts on this. Um, one of the reasons I think we actually, I don't think the literature is remotely saturated on the side of the antecedents of attention, certainly from, from a, any, anything, any certainly from a, a large scale empirical perspective, there's relatively few papers that I can think of that have, for example, basically run regressions with attention as a dependent variable, um, just to kind of put it in specific terms. Um, I think part of it, and I think a large part of it is that the minute you start doing that, it kind of puts, brings to the fore the endogenous mess that a lot of this is. Um, I think we should revel in that endogenous mess. Um, like that's what's interesting about this kind of questions and these phenomenons. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to do it, but it, it makes it really messy. It's a much easier story to tell some relatively clean narrative around how attention plays a role in leading to X, whatever X might be. Um, and the minute we start thinking about how attention is shaped, though, like all the building blocks are there, right? Institutional logics, the idea of situated attention, like the idea of reaction to stimulus, like all of these things are all, the building blocks are all there. And I think the theories 
behind it would be there. I just don't know that we've, I don't think we've embraced it nearly enough from a, from an empirical point of view to me, which is why I like the question. I'd only add that we might, um, as well as uh, talking about situations of tension, you know, the stimuli and the institutional logics, talk about the, the actors and just think about their capacities for attention as well. Obviously that attention can be saturated, but also they may have, we can expand their capacity for attention as well. In that sense, Luke, it's not a hopeless case. You may learn to pay more attention to your family. Okay, so uh, okay, so we have five minutes uh, left, but Nell has a question. So could you well, repeat quickly, and then well, that is going to be our last question in the session. There's another question, so maybe we should let the audience members speak. But I'm happy to ask my question if if not. Okay, so Ryan, well, you just put uh, the, your comment on chat. Well, could you speak up? and then so repeat it if you want. Yeah, yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. Um, this has been great. So I'm interested, a few people have mentioned this idea that this view lends itself to viewing organizational culture as a form of organization design, sort of um, from a non-structural perspective. So, so I guess I'm kind of interested in more details about how, how we think about leaders sort of strategically designing or shaping attention in an organization. Um, just would love to go deeper with that if anyone has thoughts thank you can i go i think that's really important because attention channels structures architecture is the chief executive the senior managers um prerogative to a large extent the study that violetta did um she was observing a chief executive a new chief executive who deliberately wanted to completely rip up the old strategy process and start afresh so yeah um I think it's really important. I, I'm going to modify my uh, earlier um, worries about the limits of pipes. That chief executive thought the pipes really mattered. I think we'd only say that what goes on in the pipes matters too. So yeah, they, they redesign those structures and that's part of the culture too. You know, in, in the 97 paper, I, I talked about rules of the game, which is kind of, uh, I think of it as primarily cultural, right? Uh, uh, and I think, and I think organizations are very much trying to design culture, right? Uh, precisely for the reasons that Richard is talking about, right? Uh, because it's really much more kind of a bottom-up process. Uh, and therefore, you know, when you can't dictate uh, from the top what you're going to do, then you create the cultural parameters and then... Uh, guide the attention of the participants in the organization throughout all these different levels, right? Uh, so in that sense, uh, the focus on culture is becoming really much more important in organizations, precisely because of this, uh, you know, uh, what is that you call it, uh, uh, Richard? Uh, the uh, um, attention, I forgot what the, what the term that you used, right? Uh, that uh, uh, from, the, from the bottom rather from the top. So, um, and that I think uh, the culture aspects become really important. Now, of course, designing culture is really hard to do. And uh, I think, uh, um, you know, organization theorists have, have started to be uh, scared about talking about culture these days because, uh, but it's really important.
JP, you yeah. have, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think, um, I think it's a great question. Um, I think as Willie said, obviously designing culture is, I, mean, I talk about it in my classes as maybe the hardest thing to do uh, in an organization. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge. Um, I mean, I think some of this stuff that, that this idea of, you know, I mean, look, how to, how to, if we think about culture as, as at least part of it is figuring out what's important in an organization, how, how is it that, in, that employees figure out what's important? They look at the words and actions of senior managers. They look at the incentive systems that are designed around them. They think about the, the way the physical, the physical space and kind of prioritization and who has authority in meetings, like all of these things shape the way you, you understand what's important in an organization. And what's important um, or what your perception of is what of what's important to the organization and yourself interacting with the world around you is what's going to shape your attention. This gets to the question Philip asked here. It's kind of like, I can't pay attention to everything. I'm going to have to, I'm constrained. I have to make some choices. What are the signposts I'm going to use to help me figure out what are the right things or the most appropriate things for me to focus my attention on? Some of them are external. The, you know, this is an outlier. This is a weird situation. I need to pay attention to it. Some of them are internal. This is an important thing that, that my organization has shown me through multiple channels is important, is an important place. And if I have spare cycles I can spend, like that's where I'm going to, I'm going to allocate them to some extent. Um, I don't know. That, that's at least the way I would, that I would think about it. But like, I, I think to your point, Ryan, that's a very thin starting, starting point of an answer. There's a lot more to be done around that. Uh, I, I, a lot of opportunity. Thank you, everyone. Okay, thank you for the great question, Ryan, and all the, the insightful answers by panels. So let me uh, conclude the session. So the time is up, so we run out of time. And so I'd like to uh, thank all the panelists who share a variety of insights about around the attention-based view. I think we cover lots of inter interesting, important uh, aspects like well, the culture and antecedent and critical challenges and integration with other domains like neuroscience during the Q&A session. So hopefully audiences, you find the session today inspiring and hopefully you are more motivated to engage with this attention-based view. So if you wanna revisit the session, revisit this session or recorded video of the session will be available in a few days on, on STR YouTube channel. And then we will send the link via listserv as soon as it becomes available. So thank you uh, all for coming to and making the session productive. And uh, then, oh, well, well, before I wrap it up, then well, I just turn it over to Maka to finalize the session. Absolutely. So look, uh, let me thank you on behalf of everybody for moderating and the selection of the topic and insights. Along with everybody, uh, I was learning a lot throughout the session, so I appreciate your time, attention, and insights. Look, our panelists, and everybody who joined today. Look forward to seeing you soon around. Bye. Thank you.